Thanks to your feedback and suggestions to date, you've told us you're enjoying the laid-back music we produce and broadcast on here, and want to know a bit more about it, and indeed a wee bit more about us. So we thought we'd combine those inquiries into one special edition music-themed podcast. Love is the key of it all in the Welcome to We Are Curious Cumbria, a community podcast exploring the connections between people, place and nature over the passage of time. You're listening to my friend and neighbour Mark and my friend B. It's the early 1970s through to the mid-80s. You're living at home with your parents and sisters. What were you listening to? What were your mum, dad and sisters listening to? What music did you listen to at grammar school? What were your peers listening to? Uh, At home, there was always music around uh, and musical instruments. My dad was a pretty capable musician. The piano was his main instrument. He'd also played violin in an orchestra. And he played other things like recorders. Um, he was mostly into classical music. Uh, and he got into music, I think, as a child. For What was a big deal for him would have been going to um, the cinema. And he liked the, as a child, he liked the movie soundtracks. And, and that made him want to play the piano. And he managed to get a piano shortly after World War Two, And that was the one we grew up with in the house. Uh, my sisters also played the piano, and uh, I didn't. Um, and my younger sister also took up playing classical guitar, and she she had lessons for that. So yeah, music was always around in the house. Uh, records again, predominantly uh, classical music, but um, when visitors came, they often brought pop records. So I can remember things like. The Beatles, Simon and Garfunkel, um, and stuff like that. Or if you went to other people's houses, they had things like, I can remember the monkeys and uh, things like that, which were good fun. My my parents were quite, well, my father was distasteful about most pop music. Um, my mother liked jazz and had always liked jazz. Uh, so she had a dance set, which she'd bought in the 50s, uh, and had quite a lot of records, including a lot of uh, 78s. And there was some quite cool stuff she had, uh, like Ella Fitzgerald and, uh, you know, the kind of popular end of the jazz things, but which which I really are. <laughs> That's the kind of jazz I like, actually. Um, I'm a bit lowbrow, me. My sister, my elder sister in particular, liked to listen to Radio Luxembourg uh, late at night. And uh, she at one point acquired a tape recorder and uh, used to record the top ten straight on, you know, from a microphone onto a mono um, cassette. Uh, and that is quite funny because my dad always used to say to her, oh, yes, it's, uh, it's much better to record off the uh, radio because it's a better quality than you get from a record, which... Slightly strange. I think that goes back to the days where live broadcasted music was better quality than records, but of course she's listening to Radio 1 or Luxembourg or Radio Caroline or whatever, 
and somebody's playing a 45. Um, so that kind of made us chuckle a bit. Obviously, later on, uh, my sister was often borrowed records from friends. Um, so I remember things like Queen and Alice Cooper, Billion Dollar Baby, uh, with the, the big double album, was it, with a, with a billion dollar note in it, things like that. And, and we'd listen to these records, because once you've got the album, you had the lyrics usually written which was quite good because previously we tried taping stuff and working out what these mysterious words were and getting it wrong, which is great fun. You know, the the uh, misheard lyrics of songs is um, one of the great joys of childhood, as Peter Kay, I think, pointed out in one of his uh, shows. So that that's another thing I remember. And a funny thing there was that, unlike most pop music, which my dad didn't like, my dad thought Queen were pretty good. And another person he thought was pretty good was Stevie Wonder. And there's an, uh, another interesting thing about Stevie Wonder. I remember as a, probably pre, maybe pre-teen or an early teenager, my grandfather, who my mother's father, he was always singing, usually Geordie folk songs when he was out on a walk. I remember him singing and I'm thinking, he's singing Stevie Wonder. How does an old man know our music? <laughs> but he'd, he'd obviously heard that on the radio. And the interesting thing was back in the 20s, he actually was into dancing and listened to a lot of African-American music way back. Um, how they had access to those records in Newcastle in the 1920s, I don't know, because the BBC didn't play American music, that's for sure. So school, yeah, when I started school, this was right the height of punk, really. I wasn't so much into the punk thing, uh, like, like the Sex Pistols and stuff like that. Uh, I was actually more into the prog rock, like Genesis and uh, Pink Floyd, which is more blues, really, than or depending which stuff. And I, I really liked early Sid Barrett, um, Pink Floyd, which is kind of way off stuff. Um, but with the fallout from punk with New Wave started producing stuff I really liked. I mean, things like The Clash, which was more back into kind of rock and roll territory, the kind of gothic stuff like Susie and the Banshees. Then you had, obviously, the mod revival, two-tone stuff, jam. Um, loads of interesting stuff came out of that. And then, of course, you've got people like Kate Bush pushing boundaries. There was a heap of interesting stuff. And then later on, The Stray Cats, I really liked that, which was the kind of rockabilly thing, but actually... They'd almost gone pre-rock and roll in that he was, Brian Setzer was mixing jazz, country, blues, rock and roll into something that was actually a bit more interesting, but in a really raw, slightly punky way. So you play guitar rather well and have a modest collection of classic guitars. My personal favourite has to be your Martin D28 because, of course, that's a guitar Paul McCartney, a fine acoustic guitarist, used to record some of the tunes that I love so much. Was that your first instrument, the guitar, and did you have formal lessons at any stage or did you teach yourself? The guitar is the only instrument I actually play to any degree of competence. My first foray into guitar was actually lessons at school. Whether you'd call them formal or not, it's like a load of little kids. This is infant school junior school or whatever, I'd be about seven or eight, you know, sat around, strumming away, um, skipped to Maloo. At that time, the guitar I used was something my dad had found from a colleague at work, which was a homemade plywood uh, thing with nylon strings, not the greatest sounding instrument. Um, it was suggested to me by the teacher that the guitar probably wasn't the instrument for me. Really? I love those stories when one hears about the teacher telling a student that something isn't for them. Well, I, I was in good company. I believe exactly the same thing was said to Les Paul about 50 years earlier. Um, 
we're talking about well, I mentioned the Beatles. Um, another another thing we used to listen to was uh, Wings as well. We both like Wings as much as the Beatles. Yeah, I remember playing over and over Band on the Run and Wings over America as much as I played the White Album or Revolver when I was younger. Well, maybe not quite as much. Yeah, records, vinyl were such a massive part of our lives, hey? But in your early childhood, you also listened to Mario Lanza. I did, and rather a lot more tenors. Mario Lanza, Enrico Caruso, Harry Seacombe. These were presumably your parents' records? They were my grandfather's records, I think, and I loved them and I still do. And it makes me smile to think I've gone from Mario Lanza and Harry Seacombe to loving, say, The Fall. (laughs) I can see how I'd get from a tenor to someone like Nick Cave, who I love, his ballads especially, but how do you arrive at The Fall from (laughs) Harry Seacombe? Eclectic tastes. I remember a lot about the equipment I used to listen to records and cassettes on over the years and the equipment I started to record sounds on and experiment with. I guess I've been into the production side of things as long as I can remember in one way or another. It started with a Dynatron record player encased in a kind of teak sideboard. I remember that everything in that room, it was our dining room, was teak. The record player, the table, the chairs... And I'd dance around that table. I was really shy around other children and went to a different school and the kids around where we lived. And and if I wasn't in our garden, I'd be in that dining room listening to music. Music and drama was a big part of my schooling. We did exams through Lambda, London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art, and then the London Guildhall School of Music and Drama. I remember we, we did Greek dancing at school, all sorts of extracurricular activities like that. I loved to sing and dance at any opportunity. I could lose myself doing that, but I struggled with being so shy all the same. Do you think, while you were still at school, that music shaped you? You know, that that playing music, that listening to music was an intrinsic part of who you were, who you are? I think so, yeah. Um, There was always that element when you were a teenager that, that music is, in many ways, some kind of rebellion type thing. Um, and again, some of that was a kind of lingering over from the punk or post-punk era, the kind of do-it-yourself aspect of it, that you could you didn't actually need a huge amount of skill to throw something together that might sound quite palatable. And I, I think there was a strong element of that. So still on the subject of school days and, and home life, is there one piece of music that, if you hear it now, it takes you back in time in the way that music does that? There's many pieces of music that would take me to different periods of my life. Um, I say I, I like a lot of the, and I always liked the 60s pop, even though I probably heard it more in the early 70s. Um, Same here, yeah. But it started, elements of that were emerging later on in the 70s through bands like the B-52s. And ironically, later in student days, I say ironically because they're all from the same place, um, REM. And uh, I, I like those elements that had that kind of fun. Is, is there a piece of music that um, does that for you, you know, takes you back? I think it's the same, many pieces. I used to go to an under-18s disco at the town hall. It was the highlight of my week for a couple of years. And it was there that a boy called Malcolm taught me how to dance, Northern Soul. <laughs> so lots of Northern Soul records take me back to that under-18s disco, Toby Legend, Time Will Pass You By, which is classic. Toby Legend was, in fact, Bessie Grace Copton. 
and Dobie Gray, The In Crowd, which I knew from Brian Ferry's album, Another Time, Another Place. That's the album where Brian Ferry's striking a pose in a white suit and there's a bright blue swimming pool behind him. <laughs> I was into Roxy because earlier, much earlier, when I'd taken the common entrance exam to progress from the junior to senior school, what I was most excited about, apart from English lessons and art, was getting to know these beautiful, exotic-looking sixth-formers who carried Roxy musical Bowie albums under their arms, and these girls were just so cool to me. Every first-year student was kind of looked after by a sixth-former, and it was that kind of school, a small school. Um, so inevitably I got into Roxy and Bowie. What's the most memorable gig you've been to, your favourite gig? I guess for myself it's the gig I'm at, not, not that I go to many gigs these days. Um, Gigs-wise... Uh... I saw the Stray Cats uh, quite a few years ago. Um, that was really good. Uh, another one, which not necessarily as good a gig, but I'm so glad I went to, was I, I saw uh, Chuck Berry and um, Little Richard. Wow. Uh, um, again, that's a few years back. But you know, to, to say that you've seen them w w was really good. I mean... Chuck Berry, as I remember, was a right old mixed bag. You'd start playing and I think, hang on, I'm better than this. And then you'd do something and I think, I'd have never thought of doing that. That's cool. <laughs> so you leave home in the mid-80s and you go to Hull to study. What are you listening to? And do you do that whole art college thing and start a band? Absolutely. I, would, I was already at art college before I went. I'd, I'd done a foundation course. And at that time... Uh, I came across the Cherry Red label and uh, had come across Tracy Thorne and Ben Watt, Everything But The Girl. They were in, I think they had various different bands and setups. Marine Girls was another one. Yeah. Uh, I think that probably <laughs> influenced me in going to Hull. Um, but yeah, again, there was that do-it-yourself element that we kind of got from the punkier kind of stuff, but they had this kind of jazzy vibe, which was kind of cool. So it's putting, I guess, stuff from your childhood together in a way you probably hadn't thought of before. Um, and then I, I, I like that. Uh, and so that would have been quite influential. As a student, um, I say I listened to REM a lot. Cocteau Twins were a great favourite. And uh, Suzanne Vega as well. So you're into the um, singer songwritery stuff, which again, this is... 86 or something like that one of the things about the guitar is during the early 80s it fell out of popularity which I don't actually remember at the time but a little interesting statistic is that Martin in 1970 made 22,000 guitars in 1982 they made 3,000 so the bottom had fallen out of the guitar market which actually was a good thing because it made all the big businesses drop the guitar manufacturers and they went back into the hands of people that cared about making guitars and guitar music came back um, and uh, particularly acoustic guitar music and you, you can think of people like Suzanne Vega as being perhaps the reintroduction of your female singer songwriters common now and obviously if you go back to the 60s and stuff you've got people like Joni Mitchell and things like that but it was that there was a kind of dark age uh, in the early 80s. Yeah, I love that we have, we share this common ground over so many bands, the Cocteau Twins, Everything But The Girl, 
Suzanne Vega, Joni Mitchell. You left home when you were really young on your 16th birthday. That's right. Living in a series of bed- bedsits and flats. Did you have your own record player and what were you listening to? If you can, if you can hear some crunching in the background, Alfie's just, just Alfie the dog has just started to uh, decided to eat his dinner. By the way, <laughs> so I do apologise. Ah, right, yeah. Um, well, I missed all the well, I missed all the great equipment we had at home at that time. My mum and my stepdad had a dual iWork a set deck, a garage turntable. I had one of those portable cassette players with a, a cigar-shaped mic. My stepdad was into electronics and used to make stuff, and we. We'd bonded over music. So by the time I left home, I was into Earth, Wind and Fire, Average White Band, Level 42. I listened to Jazz Funk. I listened to Brit Funk, Light of the World, Freeze. I loved Disco and Northern Soul. I got well into Scar, The Specials and Punk Pop by, say, Blondie and The Associates. I didn't have a record player, though, when I left home. Uh, I did have a cassette deck. Uh, And a DJ I knew had a console, which was called... uh, Citronic Hawaii. It was stereo and it was fabulous and I played many a tune on that console after hours after his gig had finished but I was way too shy to DJ in front of an audience and I think that's why I like production and that's why I like filmmaking. I like being behind the camera or behind a mixing desk. I'm not a performer. And today you've definitely got an eclectic taste in what you listen to right? I have. I think we both have haven't we? I'm crazy about Radiohead, Nick Cave especially his ballads, The Pixies, The Fall. I went to see the specials a few years ago, which was really special. Terry Hall, Sophia Khan. I can't have this conversation with you without mentioning just how much I admire the songwriting and musicianship of Elvis Costello, with the attractions, with Burt Bacharach too. I love Robert Wyatt, shipbuilding. Elvis Costello wrote that tune. Uh, I'm well into all types of jazz. Miles, Thelonious Monk, David Sanborn. Yeah, jazz, New Age post-bop, fusion, swing, hard bomb, third stream, some jazz that verges on rock, such as Steely Dan, uh, Latin, salsa, Brazilian. Let's talk a bit about making music. We're both into production and we both make music these days. You on your beautiful guitars and more recently, like me, using a door, a digital audio workstation, a software application used to record, edit and produce audio. Now, While I really enjoy making, sampling, mixing, producing electronic music, I so much want it to sound credible and that comes down to a lot of things, doesn't it? You can't just put a drum machine with a horn sample and a flute, right? Because I come from a background of live music, it's... It's one of those things that you you try and capture the vibe when you're doing... I mean, I'm very new to the digital arena and um, I do try to make it sound as natural as possible because that's that's what I'm used to and the way I play. I use a sound library where you buy samples like vocals, piano, trumpets, whatever whatever you're looking for that have been recorded live by session musicians, sometimes quite well-known musicians, and those samples are offered royalty-free for producers, for DJs. Most of what I make is for soundtracks for short films. But since we've started this podcast, we've been playing some of our own music laid-back pieces of music, which we just make for ourselves too, for our own enjoyment, really. And we're going to play, um, we're going to play a piece now, aren't we, that you've made called Friday Man. Um, so, yeah, Friday Man, my first foray into uh, 
playing with the, the digital stuff. And um, it's quite tricky knowing where to start. And, and what I did was I tried to think in my head what I'd do on a guitar and, and transfer that to the uh, Rhodes keyboards, um, which of course is, is slightly difficult because I haven't got the, the same kind of control. Um, so I just had to think, well, what am I going to do here? And how do I actually form that chord? Or will I just put another instrument, you know, think, well, I have the horns to handle things like ninths and elevenths and so forth, as you would if you're arranging a band. Um, and it was really just trying to see what I could do. So it's, it's, a, it's an early attempt and it's, I think it's all right. I think it's fantastic. Here's Friday Man. Friday Man by my friend Mark. I hope you enjoyed that. Feedback always welcome. Okay, part two of our special music edition podcast. And because we're generally exploring the connections between people, place and nature over the passage of time, you'll forgive the occasional tract noise. Those farmers sure are busy. There's so much to talk about still, but we want to keep this podcast fairly short, don't we? We haven't talked about rock music or country or dance music, electronic music. We haven't talked about folk music. I love Dylan, Tom Waits, John Martin. I love indie, pavement, Beck, eels, blur, pop. Again, eclectic tastes ever increasing. You've introduced me to Helen Forrest. Tell me about Helen Forrest. Helen Forrest was the band singer of the late 30s early 40s uh, and by a band singer um, she was the the go-to singer for various 
bands at a time when today you know you have pop singers and you have your your hired guns your touring musicians session musicians etc who are a much lower status back in those days the singer was generally a lower status than musicians or certainly the soloists in a band she was born in 1917 in Atlantic City and her father died and they moved the family moved to New York and she had a pretty spectacularly rubbish childhood and music was her escape and uh, I think she left home at about 14 and uh, found herself singing in bands and for too long singing on radio shows and she got a, a full-time nightclub singing job and then was spotted by Artie Shaw <laughs> who at the time was Probably the, the biggest, most successful big band leader, uh, certainly the highest paid one uh, prior to World War Two. When we talk about band leaders, most of us would be familiar with the likes of Glenn Miller and Benny Goodman. Absolutely, and uh, Benny Goodman was another band she was in. So yeah, the band leaders, uh, they really owned the whole show and, and they uh, tended to arrange and they were often soloists in their own right in their bands and they got all the money and they, they got all the money for the records uh, and everybody else was basically paid a wage. And that the money they earned was absolutely stupid, um, although obviously it didn't go into their own pockets because their expenses were also stupid because they were paying the wages of the musicians, they were paying the hotel bills, the travel expenses. So, for example, uh, if we leap forward to 1941, um, we have Glenn Miller, who's an up-and-coming band leader, and he's earning something in the region... I think of $20,000 a week, bearing in mind your average American Joe earns $25 a week. By contrast, Artie Shaw is earning $60,000 a week. Wow. Huge, huge sums of money, and they both go into the armed forces. Okay. And, and what would Helen Forrest, at the, at the peak of her career as a singer in a big band, be paid? Well, when Helen Forrest started with uh, Artie Shaw, which was her first really big break, and I think her best work is the work she did with Artie. Uh, she was also another another band member, another singer there was Billie Holiday, who was a huge influence on her. She was earning about $60 a week, which for average person is pretty good. But um, by comparison, I think that pretty much doubled when she went with Benny Goodman. I think she was on about $120 a week. Uh, she was actually with Benny Goodman exactly the same time as Charlie Christian, who was earning... Uh, $150 a week but for Charlie Christian that was a major deal because prior to that he'd been earning $10 a week. Why would Helen be, be paid more because she was with uh, Benny Goodman? Is that because is that because Benny Goodman was more commercially uh, more, more of a commercial success than Artie Shaw? Or? No I think I think Artie uh, probably earned more money it's probably because she'd established a name with the work she'd done with, with Artie Shaw had probably brought her more to the attention of the public. Okay. Um, very, very popular. Another nice thing about her, and again, I think a lot of this goes back to working with Billie Holiday, is she was really a champion of civil rights. Yay. And uh, one of the things she did, which will probably seem quite strange now, um, on, on the rare footage there is of her, is she'll sing her little bit, and, and typically band singers just sang a chorus or, you know, not very much, and, and then they, they go into all the other band stuff, and then she'd scuttle off stage. 
And the reason for that was uh, peculiar race laws uh, in America at the time, which meant that African-American performers were only allowed to be on stages in you know, white clubs um, when they were actually performing. So they were supposed to scuttle off stage. So she, she was a uh, Russian-Jewish extraction, she did exactly the same thing to show solidarity to African-Americans. That's awesome. So Helen is playing with Benny Goodman, uh, and that's, is that the zenith of her career? No, not really. For her, it was actually one of her less enjoyable uh, times, um, although she, she played with three of the top five uh, bands, or sang with them. Um, with Benny Goodman, she got fed up of him noodling over <laughs> when she was singing. And um, so she said to Benny, she said, I've had enough. Go find yourself another singer. And uh, he did. <laughs> uh, in fact, he ended up with um, Peggy Lee, who, who went on to have a, a good career with him. She then went on to join um, Harry James' orchestra. Uh, uh, Harry, I think, was a, an ex-horn player with Benny Goodman. Uh, and they actually ended up having an affair um, and by about 1943, they were involved in a, a film called Springtime in the Rockies. This film also had... This film uh, starred or, or co-starred Betty Grable, and uh, Harry James then had an affair with her, and he actually ended up marrying her. And uh, for those of you interested in World War II, when you see the, the pictures of Betty Grable painted on the sides of aircraft, the classic one where she's looking over her shoulder, she's in a swimsuit... That's taken shortly after that time, and, and the reason she was originally photographed in that pose is because she's pregnant with Harry James' baby. See. But, but anyway, from Helen Forrest's point of view, this wasn't great, and uh, she parted company um, with Harry James' orchestra. So she did later on um, play with him again. Uh, and, and then she tried to go down the pop star route, which... Um, was another way of doing things where the singer is the star rather than you know, another musician in the band. Uh, and she was less successful in that, although she had her own radio show um, with Dick Hames and uh, she had TV appearances. And then really in later life, she went on to do the kind of the nostalgia circuits playing uh, a place like Reno and Vegas. Oh, she was at Reno actually when... Um, Frank Sinatra, Frank Sinatra Jr. was kidnapped by the Mafia or whatever it was. Uh, and she, she really carried on doing that until the 80s. And then she died in, I think, 1999. How old was she when she died? Uh, eight, well, she was born 1917, so... Oh, sorry, you said... Uh, <laughs> yeah, OK. Do the math. I won't. I won't. <laughs> you were in the military for many years, and during that time, uh, being in a band, or bands, played quite a large part of your life. Do you miss being part of a band? Yes, I, I do in many ways. Um, I think when you when you get into a good band, and by a good band, I mean when you are working with people who you can gel with musically, um, that's a fantastic thing, and it's it's not something you find every day. Um, and so, so when you've got that kind of relationship where somebody just comes up with a riff or whatever, a bass groove, and you can lock into it. That's a super thing. 
playing in a band really tightens you up as a musician. Uh, and I suspect I'm pretty sloppy these days from, from not doing that mm. in, in many respects. So my some of my skills and the ability to improvise will have gone because a lot of the time playing in a band, a lot of stuff was done on the hoof. Yeah, and you're jamming, I guess, so, you know, jamming with other musicians. Yeah, and, and, and writing stuff and helping people finish stuff they've done. It's, it's when, when it's right, I mean, we're saying when you, it's finding that right person. And of course, I, I was in a band with the same guy, and also I was in many different bands with the same bassist, a chap called Jan Townsend, who um, was a fantastic musician. And uh, he was just one of those people that I could I could work with very easily. And we did different genres of music. We played rock and roll, we played indie, uh, a bit of jazz, and all, all sorts of things, because we could just bounce ideas off each other. What's, what's your friend Jan Townsend doing these days? Um, he's still he's still playing in bands, and uh, I think he's still he's doing DJing as well. He's out there. I be, I believe he's retired from serving Queen and Country. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned uh, folk music earlier. Uh, I used to like going to folk clubs back in the day, and uh, that I quite like the idea of mixing folk music with other genres. Um, I believe you were in a folk band, were you not? Once? I was. I was in a very short-lived folk band back in the day. Playing small scale folk clubs and pubs, but as I've said, I'm I'm not a performer, and the music I make now is either for soundtracks for films I make or purely for my own enjoyment. It's a, a way of relaxing for me, especially on rainy days. I'm I don't like performing in public. We're going to play two more pieces, laid back tunes. This first piece we've put together and produced together features lots of live instrument samples and a singer. Maya Kermati is one of the new generation expanding the horizons of Reunion Island's traditional song form, Maloya. Maloya was born out of the oppression of enslaved African and Malagasy people brought to work the island's sugar plantations and it became a defiant symbol of identity and was uh, banned by the authorities until 1981. Maya's father, Gilbert Punia, was one of the spearhead artists in the music's liberation with his band, Ziskaken, into whose ranks Maya was enlisted at an early age as a backing singer. Putting music aside as a teenager, she rediscovered the importance of her Creole roots while a student in France. And I got this information from a website called Womax, which uh, Womax is a worldwide music expo. It's the most international and culturally diverse music meeting in the world and the biggest conference of the global music scene, featuring a trade fair, talks, films, showcase concerts. So we decided to call this tune Maya. Thank you. 
Finally, here's a longer tune I made last summer called Felicidad, again featuring live instruments and vocals, this time a singer called Gia, who's singing in Portuguese. I wanted nothing more than to create a playful, laid-back tune with a summery vibe that I could jig around to while pottering in the kitchen or the garden. de flor Bria tranquila depois leve a e cai como uma lágrima de amor
music is your music. If you'd like to download any of it for your listening pleasure or indeed to remix it, you're welcome to do so. No charge. Just get in touch and we'll provide you with the links. Thanks for listening. Our studio managers today were Molly Leckenby and Alfie Davies.